grateful I am, how grateful we can be for the living Word of our God, a Word that speaks grace and truth and comfort, even as I sat with our sister Diane this morning. It was God's Word, the God of all comfort, who speaks to us and comforts us in our sorrow. So I'm so grateful uh, that we can turn to God's Word now, that He, in fact, speaks to us, condescends, and lisps to us as His children that we might know him more. So I'll ask you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Again, if you're looking for that candid, honest, this is how the world really works uh, kind of material, then Ecclesiastes is a fine place to start uh, for that. Um, The wise preacher, uh, teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's sort of been there, done that. He's sharing his experience, conclusions that he's come to along the way. Because there's so much of life we don't understand. There is so much that is confusing and frustrating. So much that seems unfair and could very easily lead us to despair. So that we ask honest questions like, what's the point? You know, why, why is this happening? What should I be about? Um, how should I live when so much of life is... Um, confusing and fleeting, temporal. Um, I don't want us to forget that this is, and this is the authoritative, inspired uh, Word of God. He's feeding us with what it is we need the most, growing us in holiness um, that we might give Him glory every day that He gives to us. And so this wisdom literature uh, really carries a message of, of God's goodness, um, His grace to us, so we can exalt Him uh, even uh, you know, to make Christ look so very big in our lives. I was thinking of John the Baptist and you know, his attention is turned to the Lord and he is confronted with his own uh, significance, his own ministry. You remember what he says? He must increase and I must decrease. Um, I mean, that, that is strikingly honest. Strikingly simple, um, but uh, so very accurate. And I think that's what I really appreciate about Ecclesiastes. One of the things uh, is just how, how it narrows our focus, uh, really, really gets rid of the fluff and um, stating the point clearly. This is the main point. The main point of this entire book comes in the last two chapters Uh, of Ecclesiastes. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments. That's the summary and the proposition for your life and for my life. Fear God and keep His commandments. So you think, well, why all this other information? Why don't you just get those two verses, say amen, and uh, and we'll be done. Um, But the Lord knows what we need. Uh, He knows our distractions. He knows our temptations. Where we are prone to wander and lose sight of that purpose. Uh, and sometimes we lose sight very quickly. And um, so the wise teacher shows us here in chapters 5 and 6 some of the ways that, um, well, some of the ways uh, of God's providence that frustrate us in a world that's darkened by sin. But then he provides this, this answer, which is strikingly simple and honest. Uh, requires an ever-deepening faith in the God of eternity. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, take a closer look, uh, beginning at 5, verse 8, and going through um, chapter 6. 
Lord God, we are grateful to you that you give us your holy and living word. We are grateful that you are present with us in these very moments. You do not leave us. You never forsake us. You draw near. And it is your very spirit that indwells us, the spirit of Christ. Oh, good shepherd, shepherd our hearts now beyond all wants, beyond all fears. Lord, shepherd us from death into life through your living word. We ask your help now as we turn to your word that as you speak to us, we would be attentive, that you would work the grace and truth of your word into our hearts and minds, that we might know you more, that we would look to you with an ever-deepening faith and a growing love for you, our God, who has given us the greatest joy, who has given us what, what ultimately satisfies the longings of our hearts. For this we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, culture shock is a very real thing. For those coming to the United States or if you have traveled abroad, you know how significant uh, culture shock can be. There's things that will just simply surprise you. Um, they may even shock you. And, uh, you know, I think of the, what may be normal cuisine, um, like horse meat or sheep's heads or rats, things like that, very normal in some places, that would probably shock us if it were put on a plate and offered to us, um, just because we're not accustomed to those types of things. Um, the type of clothing or lack thereof uh, in a different land may surprise you if you've not, um, not seen that or comfortable with that. Language, hygiene, um, ceremonies and celebrations, all these things, very different from the culture we live in. And if we're not prepared for it, even if we are, I think, it can be shocking at times. In the opening of chapter 5 here, uh, the wise teacher, you know, he, he's, he's taken us into the sanctuary of God. He's warned us against mechanical worship, against sort of being flippant with our words. We'd be wise, sincere worshipers, faithful with our vows and commitments, but now we've sort of left the sanctuary and we're looking out again at the world that we live in. Um, and what we observe and what we experience can be shocking. It probably shouldn't shock us as much as image bearers of God, but at the same time, it surprises us. Uh, what we see in this sin-scarred world under the sun. And in this section here, we're led to see some shocking things. Again, maybe not so shocking depending on our experience, but we're also shown just what should amaze us in the world that we see, what should amaze us in this vanity, in the frustration and disappointment that we face under the sun. What shocks us and what should amaze us. So looking here at, at verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor, and the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And we like to think as human beings, certainly universally, that you know, basically underneath it all, uh, we're good people, that we have good intentions in mind, that we'll choose what is right and good. But as we experience more of this life, and we give any real attention to God's Word, we realize that this is just not the case. 
our hearts rebel against God. We're prone to wander. And so in that sin, we've lost sight of what is good and true and beautiful, or at least we've had that you know, distorted now. Um, we give up what is actually best for us and for those around us so that we can, in essence, um, be our own gods, build our own personal kingdom. So this wise teacher, he doesn't buy into this. He has a realistic view of human nature, which is important for us as well. Human beings are not basically good. And so we're going to find this injustice and oppression and violence and corruption wherever we look. And so you, you, you mix in these ingredients of, of a hardened heart that's blind and deaf to sin. You pour in a little power and maybe, maybe shake in some, some wealth, a little pinch of, of status or influence. Again, you're going to end up with a nice, plump cake of corruption. It's usually those at the bottom that typically you know, get to eat this cake. They're the ones trampled by corruption. Everyone, including the highest official, is dependent upon the land, one who, who works the land. I think we can get at least this much from verse 9 of the translations really abound for this verse. The land is good for everyone. We're all served by the one who works the land, but that one usually suffers the most under corruption and injustice. So we can look at this a couple different ways. You know, the official up at the top has certain demands and expectations, and so the person underneath that one maybe has to work the system a little bit, maybe a little crookedly to satisfy the demands of that boss. Well, then there's another one under that person, another one under there, and it keeps going all the way down you know, to the farmer in the field. This is very little of the fruits of his labor. Uh, but we can also view this in a more positive sense. I think we find this helpful. That if, if this boss is crooked, it helps to know that there is another one that that person reports to. And there's one that that person reports to. And that that person, all the way to the Lord God Himself. At some point, the injustice and the oppression has to stop. It'll get called out. And that ultimately stops with God. All authority, every official is accountable to Him for how they use the authority entrusted to them. And the judge of all the earth uh, will certainly do right. So don't be shocked by corruption. Uh, it is actually more the norm than the exception among those deceived in sin. And I, you know, we can't escape uh, without considering how we might contribute to this corruption. I mean, we're not immune from this. It should certainly sadden us when we see this. We're going to see people. We, we may be those people. They're just out there who are working hard and then get robbed of what we work so hard for. Let's cry out to God to end this type of oppression and corruption and injustice. Lament is that language of the Christian and all of life under the sun. Our king, our high official, uh, will act in righteousness and justice. Though at times we may see very little of it right now. Another thing that shocks us, to verses 10 through 12, if you've been around the block of life a little under the sun, this, this may not surprise you as much. But if you are younger and you're thinking about the future, thinking about education and 
and all of those, you know, what I want to do uh, when I grow up sort of questions, then this may be more of a shock to the system. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There was a bumper sticker, I think it was back in the 80s, uh, that read, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. You Remember that sticker? Yeah, you don't see it very much anymore. It was a good thing. Um, but a lot of folks, and I don't, I don't think I'm stretching this at all, to say that most folks in America are still living like that slogan is true. Um, he who dies with the most toys, and I think we're, you know, we're thinking cars and RVs and boats or whatever, stuff like that. This is everything. This is all the stuff. Property, stocks, retirement accounts. He who dies with, with the most stuff dies like everybody else. You come into this world naked and completely dependent. Verse uh, 15 is going to remind us of this. And you leave this world completely dependent. You can't, can't take it with you. Not one cent, not one toy. Russian author Leo Tolstoy, he, he tells a story about a, a peasant farmer who was just not content with his lot. He wanted more, really, of everything. And so one day he is offered this deal that he simply could not resist for a thousand rubles. It's Russian, so this was this about $13 in today's currency. For a thousand rubles, he could purchase as much land as he could walk around in a day. So you start here, as much as you can cover is yours for that price. So you can imagine what he did. He got up early the next morning and he started out at a fast pace. And by midday, he's, he's a long ways from the start, but he keeps on going and he realizes that maybe his greed has taken over a little bit and he needs to start turning back. And so by mid-afternoon, he's, he's picked up this pace, his heart is pounding as he tries to make it back to the starting. Because that was part of the the deal if he didn't make it back to the start before the sun sets he would lose he'd lose it all um, and so as the sun is fading below the horizon he is running towards the finish line and just as it disappears he collapses over the finish line blood trickling from his mouth in a few minutes he's dead and on just a little while later some servants come and they carry him to a plot and they dig six feet by three feet and bury him. And the title of Tolstoy's story is really the point. The title is, How Much Land Does a Man Need? How much land does a man need? Um, we can never be satisfied with the stuff that God never intended to satisfy us. Jesus addresses this often in the New Testament. Luke chapter 12 says that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Um, I think of you know, what, what we love the most is what captures our hearts. It's what we will serve. In Matthew 6, it's very clear. We cannot serve the stuff and God at the same time. Money, the influence that it brings, makes it very difficult to keep God at the center and the focus of our affections. Um, who, 
who we are before God, that's infinitely more important than the stuff. He looks at the heart, not the outward appearance, not at the stuff. So we're called to be rich toward God. And in, in doing that, that's when we find the joy and the satisfaction that we're really looking for. Um, so think about how this shapes your life. Think about your goals for the future. I mean, do you want to be tied to the stuff that really isn't yours and you can't take it with you? I mean, very practically, and this, this comes from our text, the more stuff, the more to worry about. The more cares. The less stuff, the less to worry about. The less distractions, the less temptations. Um, for you younger people, if your goal is to get an education and a job that makes lots of money and your goal is to fill the bank accounts, you need to stop and reconsider that. Okay, now God, His kindness may very well provide. Um, he can provide in extraordinary ways. We, we let Him fill the storehouses. Let Him do that as, as you cultivate your own skills in your own interests, in your own resources that He's given to you. But your relationship to God, your love for Him and heart's desire to serve Him is infinitely more important than what's in the bank account. Um, I was thinking, I don't know a person, I don't think I have met a, a person in my life who could faithfully follow the Lord, faithfully walk in obedience to Christ when the goal was to build the savings account. And I know very many who've been blessed tremendously of the Lord, whose storehouses are full, but that wasn't their goal. The temptations, uh, the grasp for more is just too strong for our hearts to resist. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, Brad, come on, let's, let's don't go overboard on this. We're hearing it over and over again. You can do lots of things with money. You know, the pleasure, prestige, influence, even lots of good things, contributions, they, they've all got dollar signs attached to them. Um, and I, I understand that. We need, um, but we need to remember that, that money has value only if someone decides it has value. Um, the money, the stuff, it has no value until people put a value on it. So that, that moves us into a different realm, different questions. What really has value in life? So now, now, we're, now we're in the spiritual, right? Um, who determines what is most valuable? Is it you? Is it me? Or is it God? It's God who decides what is valuable. Just in one place here, through the Apostle Paul, he helps us with this. It says, rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this, this money, this stuff, it cannot make us, but it can easily break us. Um, so we need, to move, we need to move along here, verses uh, 13 through 17. I'm not going to uh, read it all aloud now, but it's another shocker. Sometimes the money, the stuff just disappears. And it may not be the fault of the one who owns it, but a business deal goes south and money is lost. And in context here, you know, someone's going to send a bunch of goods or wealth to another place in a caravan and, and it's ambushed or robbed. The stuff is gone. 
Maybe goods are shipped out on boats out in the sea and the ship sinks. It's gone. Um, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Of course, in our time, we say, well, that's why you have insurance, to cover those types of things. Right? But at some point, the coverage runs out. At some point, it's gone. I mean, you can invest a whole bunch in those stocks. What happens when the stock market crashes? It's gone. Uh, and that's, that's a sickening failing. You've been in that place. I mean, it can really embitter the soul. comes out of verse 17 there. So let's remember, church family, we're not, not immune to such things while we're living under the sun. This is what is happening with God's people in the church. There, there are those that we know who work and work and work with no financial relief. There's little sense of financial freedom. And then there are others who seem to work very little and, and so much is handed to them. It's vexing, it's vanity. One more shocker here comes from the first six verses of chapter 6. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So there are some who have it all. Everything in the world uh, that the world has to offer is given them, and then they can't even enjoy it. You say, well, why is that? Well, it could be because they die. They're gone before they can enjoy those things. I mean, you know, how many are months before retirement and there's an accident? Months before retirement and they receive that diagnosis. Um, you know, maybe they're so distracted or worried or overwhelmed that they can't enjoy the stuff. Or maybe, and this is, this is the road I think we're heading down, you know, the one who cannot enjoy the stuff in the days that they've been given is because they do not acknowledge who has provided the stuff. The one who's given it all to them. He's given it to them for, for them to enjoy and to supply joy to others. But if that's not seen, if that's not appreciated, then a person can live multiple lifetimes. They can have hundreds of children and not enjoy any of it. So if we try to derive that status and joy from this stuff, from the gifts and not the giver himself, then there's going to be no rest, no real contentment. This is what moves us from what is shocking to what is amazing. Okay? It is God himself who provides he provides the stuff that you and I need. He provides it when we need it out of His wisdom, out of His care for us. I think, you know, not only that, He provides the very ability to enjoy our station, to enjoy uh, our lot in life and the good things of this life. I mean, this is God's loving kindness. This is His providential care for us as His people. To think that He knows you know, every bird that's flapping around out there, every bud that's starting to poke through in the fields. You think he doesn't know what you need and that he isn't governing and orchestrating your path. I mean, the, the providence and the provision of God, that should amaze us. It should amaze us. He knows our lot. He secures 
He secures our very estate, whatever that estate may look like in this season of life. His providence guards us just from countless disasters every day. Just consider that even this morning on your way here. Each day is a gift that is filled with His goodness. We look to Him and how to spend our days. So if we can enjoy the, the gifts, enjoy our lot, then that is another gift from Him. Let's pray for this. Let's pray that the Lord would enable us to enjoy uh, what He's given for the day. You know, I have those days where I'm more anxious and worried about stuff. Um, could be family, could be finances, future. Um, if you tune in to any new source, that's just like dumping fuel on the fire of worry, anxiety. Um, some of us really struggle with, with worry and anxious spirits. But I want us to hear what it is we're communicating when we worry. In short, here's what we're saying. God, you won't get this right, and I know better. You won't get this right. That's what we're communicating. We won't ever say that. That's what we're believing when we worry. I'm slowly working through John Flavel's uh, book, The Mystery of Providence. Um, highly recommend it, as I would just about any of the writings from the Puritans. But he concludes a short section on employment this way. Be well satisfied in that station and employment in which providence has placed you. Providence is wiser than you, and you may be confident that it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. Oh, how wise is God's providence. We can accept our lot. We can give thanks for what God has provided. Take joy in our daily work. It, the joy itself, the, the toil itself, may not be all that fun all the time. That's why it's called toil. But the ability to, to work, to do what God has enabled us to do for the day. Um, this is His providence. And the wise person understands this. The wise person keeps their, their appetite for more under control. Recognizing that both the opportunity and the ability to enjoy good things comes from the giver himself. God is the source of joy, the source of rest, the source of contentment in our everyday. Contentment does not consist in getting the things we desire, says another Puritan preacher. But in God's fashioning our spirits to our condition. Oh, that, that would be true. That God would fashion my spirit to the condition. The condition of the day. Living with gratitude. Dependence upon Him. Pray that with me. That God would grant us contentment. Here's another pastor uh, defines contentment. Using language we've already heard says this is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. That spirit, that joyful rest, that's not going to come automatically. Uh, we cannot go through the motions of life and expect this. We have to pray for it. We have to pursue it. So we pursue godliness. And I think of you know, if you've gone swimming in a, in a large lake or the ocean, 
do you know what the current feels like, what that undertow feels like? And if you're standing, you know, close to your beach and umbrella, right along the, the edge there, you're not, you're not going to feel that very much. But when you really step in and you get out into the water and you're out there for a little while and you look up, where are you? Well, you're, you've, you've moved a long way and you didn't even realize it. Um, church family, this is the everyday battle. The everyday spiritual life for us. The allures of this world are always pulling. Pulling us away from, from home. Our true rest and security in Christ. And so our sin patterns, they're in there. The, the, the devil packaging up you know, a bunch of lies and then handing it to us. Said, this is your life. Here it is. Enjoy it. And all the while, there's this undertow of discontentment. I love how uh, C.S. Lewis portrays this in his uh, screw tape letters, just masterful. Um, screw tape is that senior demon who is giving pointers to a younger demon on how to destroy people's lives, how to keep them discontent. Um, let, me, uh, let me read this paragraph. Uh, remember, this is, this is the demon speaking. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in decrees which he has forbidden. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least, sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. We can enjoy the good things, the everyday things of life, that God has given, but we're not, to, we're not to love them and fix our affection on them. So we actually, we actually have to loosen our grip on the things of this life if we are to truly enjoy the things of this life. So contentment, that, that deep rest of the soul, not found in the stuff that comes and goes. It is found in our God who loves us and gives Himself freely for us. This is a love that transcends all of the stuff. He has made us His very own. And we know that He will not spare one good thing because He's not spared His only Son for us. Church, that, that should shock us and amaze us all at the same time. It, I mean, it's hard to complain. It really is. It's hard to complain it's harder to worry. It roots out discontentment if we know that we're not getting what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. We deserve the endless misery under His judgment. But instead, He places what we deserve upon Christ. And what Jesus deserved, that's what's been given to us. Sweet peace and joy and rest with God our Father. In the fullness of time, there's, in the greatest display of God's providence, God sent His Son. And how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things?
so we can enjoy the gifts of today, whatever our lot, whatever our station, because Christ is our joy for eternity. So life under the sun, it's vexing and vanity, but life eternal in Jesus, it is victorious. Um, Everyday work, everyday gifts, pleasures um, that he enables us to enjoy, just a taste of his goodness. Uh, It's meant to to cast our eyes upon him, uh, to draw us deeper uh, into his love for us. And so now we can use those gifts that he apportions by his providence to love him back, to love others, to increase their joy, advance his kingdom until that day when we will have pleasures unending, joy in full in fellowship with our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you that we even have the ability to come and worship today, that we have the ability to enjoy the good things that you have bestowed upon us. Lord, you have given us the very best of thing and forgiveness and life in Christ. Lord, forgive us in our short-sightedness and rebellion for not trusting in your providential care, not trusting that you are good and wise and go before us. Lord, we thank you you've given us this day to rejoice in you this day to celebrate the life that we have in Christ. This day to give you praise and thanks for what you've clothed us with, what we've eaten and will eat today. Places of employment, places of rest, homes to cover us. Lord, all of these things we can take delight in today because they come from you, our God. May you be our soul satisfaction. May we find our deep rest and contentment in you. We thank you, Lord, that you enable us to do this by the power of your Spirit, uniting us to Christ. That's in his name we pray. Amen.